It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Jason, I have a question for you. Yes. When you think of being a millionaire, what's the first thing that comes to mind? All the cars I would buy. No car, cars as in like two cars, because the other thing that came in my mind was the ways I would want to use that money to support others, like the animal rescues I'm involved in and feeding the homeless, two things that I'm super passionate about. I've thought about this a lot, actually. I've thought about this a lot. And interestingly enough, through the whole shelter in place and COVID-19 thing that all been through recently, I realized that on a material level, there's not really much more that I already have in my life that I really want. There's a few things, you know, but I kind of am in the space wit of, you know how much I've wanted to buy a house for a long time. And there's also a very specific car that I would put money on. But after that, I would actually want to I would want to support like Little Love Rescue and support like Pets of the Homeless and our friend Nicole, who's doing, you know, the Martha Project, feeding the homeless people around LA. I don't know. The first thing is like, I think about like, yeah, I want to buy a house and buy a car that I've wanted. But I think about all the time, if I had the means, the financial means, how many animals and and people I would want to support with that money. That's really interesting because I think a lot of us immediately go to like all the things that we've never had that we want to buy, you know, because- Money is so wrapped up into freedom and this desire to be able to do whatever we want to do and not have any limitations and get everything that we've ever wanted. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, there's that ongoing topic of discussion we have in many episodes about how even when you get everything you want, you may not feel any better about your life. You might not feel happier. In fact, you may feel empty. I mean, this is just like one of the most reoccurring points that we seem to make in our episodes. It just comes up over and over again. And and how there's so many examples that we haven't quite experienced to this extent. But when you think of really wealthy people or really successful people getting everything they wanted, and yet they're still not happy. And I feel like I've experienced that off and on. And I go back to this experience I had, let's see, it's about 10 years ago, I would mm-hmm. I would estimate. Okay. And I went to a body work session for cranial sacral. Oh, this is the person you've mentioned to me several times. I have, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he's still practicing, but he was a really powerful body worker and healer in a lot of ways. And some people in my life had raved about him. And so I started to see him and he actually did permanently adjust some pain I had in my shoulder for years and years. And I I literally have not had that pain since going to see him. Mm. And so I felt very compelled. And I actually have a video I recorded long ago on the Eco Vegan Gal YouTube channel I can link to with him interviewing him and talking about his work. And I think I recorded one of my friends getting a session with him, or maybe it was me. I don't remember. And it's probably really embarrassing because it's in the early days of my (laughs) YouTube career. But I'll put it in the show notes anyways at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, just in case you're curious about cranial sacral. Anyways, 
it wasn't just the physical work that he did on me that had a lasting impression, but it was something that he pointed out about me because his work, similar to a lot of body work, is also the psychological and emotional sides effects. And he asked me what was going on in my life, as he usually did. And it, it was kind of his way of tuning into my body and seeing how he could support me. And in this session, I told him that I was feeling some concern with money. And he asked me, well, have you ever been in a period in a place before where you weren't able to pay your bills, where you weren't able to make things work? And I reflected and thought, hmm, you know, I actually haven't. And his point was that a lot of our concerns about money are based in the future. Mm -hmm. And that I've been blessed, and and this isn't going to be true with everybody, but I have been blessed where I always figure it out whether the money just shows up and it's like the universe supporting me or I get an extension on a bill payment or some sort of forgiveness. I mean, we're experiencing this so much with COVID-19 and that people are just being more lenient with paying bills on time or not putting up late fees or whatever. And anyways, I think about that often because I have realized that it's not about the money. And I feel like Jason, did I say this once before? I feel like maybe I I shared this little point that I'm making right now of that. It actually has not been about the financial amount. It's not about how much it's been in my bank account. It's I felt an ongoing stress about money, no matter how much money I've had. Yep. Now it it has. Are you saying yep that I have said this, or yes as in you agree? Both. (laughs) Both. Mm -hmm. What was the context in which I brought this up before? Do you remember? I don't, but you and I have discussed how in different ways there's this layered discussion about enoughness and and the amount of money in your bank account that it would take to, quote, feel safe or feel secure or feel good. Um, I know we've discussed this off the podcast in different ways before. Absolutely. Certainly. Yeah. I just don't know if I had brought it up before. Anyways, I found that was really helpful. And it's funny how one little sentence that somebody says to you can have a ripple effect over many years in your life. And I'm so grateful for that point because it helps me ground myself when I'm feeling really stressed about money. And it gives me the perspective that what I don't need is more money. Sure, more money does give me a sense of freedom and security. Sure, it makes it easier to pay bills and easier to buy things that I want. But you know, this is going to sound really obvious, but also important to remind ourselves of is the amount of times that I've looked forward to buying something and it's the anticipation of getting it. It's just like your career. You know, it's the anticipation of getting to a certain point in your career or the anticipation of a relationship. Mm hmm wow, I can't wait till I meet my person. And then you're with the person and then sometimes you start to take them for granted and you forget what it was like to anticipate that relationship. You forget what it's like to anticipate success in your career. You reach a certain milestone and you're suddenly looking for the next milestone. And this is part of the reason that it's so hard to feel enough because we focus so much on something, we get it, and then we immediately focus on something else. And this is why it's so important to be present and grateful but also not to get attached to things. And I think this is so true of money. And I know you know this, Jason. It's just so interesting, though, is your common response to what you would do with money is to get cars. But I have a feeling that you would get a car and then you would immediately want the next car. And maybe that would be fun for you. Maybe that would be joyful for you. 
Or maybe it actually would lead you to feel a little depressed, like, oh, getting that car is nowhere near as exciting as the idea of getting that car is. Completely. Now, granted- I agree with that. I definitely have pointed out this before. I will say that getting my Tesla that I had wanted for so long remains- almost two years later to be a very exciting thing. I never take that car for granted. So, you know, maybe not literally, maybe you would get a a McLaren one day, Jason, and every day you would be grateful for it because I feel that way. There are certain things in our life that we do have continuous gratitude for. I'm not saying it's an overarching thing. I think it really depends on you and the place that you are. But my point is, is that it's interesting how we often go to that place of thinking that our lives are going to change significantly. And if I really look back on my life, I have not changed that much as a person based on the dollar amount of my bank account, based on how regularly income is coming in. Certainly, I feel different amounts of tension when I don't have as much money. I do feel a little bit higher stress. But I also cannot say that that stress is completely gone when I've felt financially stable. Or even like the small things of getting something in the mail. I've noticed this a lot recently. I'm not someone that orders too much online. But the last couple of times I have received a package, even something that was gifted to me. Somebody has sent me products and I look forward to it so much. I get the product and then it's like an hour later, that feeling is gone. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, and again, that's, that's often what happens with material purchases is this, this like anticipation is usually so much more exciting than the actual thing. (laughs) Yeah. And that, can feel depressing a lot of the times. And, and I guess like that knowledge and that experience grounds me in not getting attached to wanting more money. It's interesting that you explore this and you extrapolated it to a new relationship or a new love or a new person in our lives or career success. And I think that by and large, if I look at myself and I look at the behaviors of a lot of people in society and also what corporations and media and marketing and advertising people do is is they sell us on the addiction of more, better, new, different. And we're constantly looking for more, better, new, and different things, cars, people, relationships, haircuts, clothes. I mean, you might say that the brand of capitalism, the style of capitalism that we have been existing on for so long in our society, that's the engine it runs on, is selling people that they need new, better, more, and different. And if they don't have that, then there's clearly something wrong with us. You know, you see it in different ways, you know, of people being shamed for the way that they dress or the car that they drive or the zip code they live in or whatever sort of material tyranny is imposed upon people. I think it's a very real thing. And it's something I'm still unraveling, you know, of this idea of if I have these things, they're going to demonstrate to me based on whatever materialistic value system I have and to other people that I've, quote, made it of whatever that means. Oh, you bought a house in this city or you, you bought this car. It must mean I'm a quote, important person. And I battle with that, right? Because on some level, whether I live in a studio apartment or a house in the Hollywood Hills, does that change my worth and intrinsic value as a person? Of course it doesn't. But there's still this notion that, oh, I must have done something successful or I'm of higher value to people because I bought this house, bought this car, have this successful company, have a certain number in my bank account. I mean, it really is such deep conditioning that I'm certainly still working through every single day, especially in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. And 
the idea of success and productivity and money and what the hell does it actually all mean? And also examining our desires for it and how it continues to shift. It actually reminds me of the beginning of the recent interview with Elon Musk that Joe Rogan did. Yeah. And I've only listened to maybe like 20 minutes of it so far. The part that stuck out to me is when Joe asked Elon about how on Twitter he was talking about getting rid of all of his like material possessions. Yes, 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 yes. Did you listen to it? I did. I listened to the whole thing. And, oh, wow. And his position was that there's a lot of twofold, you know, there's a lot of shaming of billionaires right now. There, yep. There's kind of like, how did he say it? It's a target vector. That's how he and phrased he said, it. I, I think Joe Rogan, he said, he called it an attack vector. Sorry, attack vector, not a target vector. Yes, correct. And Elon said it's become pejorative, like it's a bad thing, being a billionaire, that is. Correct. Yeah. And he, he kind of went into this interesting perspective about, he brought up Warren Buffett and certain people in the, I guess, law fields and financial fields that we don't need as many lawyers and financial analysts and people in those positions because he feels that their talent and their wisdom and their genius could be better served making things. And he was trying to create this idea that people who are I guess, adding value to the world or making things that are improving the human condition. There's nothing wrong with making money at those things, whereas some people in other positions may not be as relevant or valuable, even though they're making a lot of money. So to put people under the umbrella of you're rich or you're a billionaire, therefore you are bad is a misnomer. And I would have to agree. I mean, I think lumping people in this category of wealth and, and having a certain amount of money must mean they're a bad person, I think is a horrible, inconclusive statement. And it's also very confusing because there's so much societal pressure to become wealthy, at least in the United States. I mean, most of us, at least in our age range, have grown up aspiring to be a millionaire. You know, that's a huge part of our American culture. And there was even that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which actually just came back on the air. They refreshed it. And it's fascinating. We also have this idea that if you just follow certain rules, anybody can become a millionaire. It's this American dream that you can just bootstrap your way to riches and give enough time, hard work, and smart financial decisions. It's within reach. And so there's like this weird pressure to become incredibly financially successful and simultaneously a lot of shame built into it once you do become successful. So it's like a a damned if you do, damned if you don't, not to mention as you were saying earlier, kind of people will judge you based on are you successful or are you not? And there's this shame and not making it happen. Like, oh, if I haven't made enough money, then people aren't going to take me as seriously. So I need to show that I have enough money to afford a house or a car or whatever other lifestyle materialistic things. Or maybe even like, this is a big thing with people in our age range too, especially because we even have friends that that do this. And I I think also I've probably positioned myself this way in the past as part of like a marketing strategy is like, hey, look at me. I've made it this far. So follow my strategies and you'll be able to do replicate my success. And that's a huge thing, or at least has been in the past five to 10 years. It's like people showing off how great their lives are and like, hey, just follow my formula and you can get there too. Yeah, I, man, there's a lot to unpack with this. And the first thing that comes up for me, Whitney, we've spoken about this kind of dualistic, almost schizophrenic nature of, I call it crabs in a barrel, where there's an encouragement 
and almost a fet. Well, there is a fetishization of becoming rich and famous in our society, modern society, not just American society. I'd say most societies, it's it's celebrated and encouraged to be as famous, influential, and rich as possible, but not too famous and not too influential, or we're going to try and pull you back down into the barrel. We're going to cancel you. you. We've talked about cancel culture. Oh, completely. <laughs> if you get too famous and you get too rich, then we are going to turn the screws on you and we are going to turn the dial of scrutiny up so high because you actually made it out of the barrel. We're going to do everything we can to pull you back down into the barrel with all of us. It's a weird thing of you get too famous, you get too influential, you get too rich. And then a lot of people, not everyone, but it's almost like you mentioned the cancel culture, societally acceptable to put people under a microscope once they become rich and famous enough that they're not allowed to quote, screw up. They're not allowed to make mistakes. They're not allowed to have a human moment of an error decision. Or we, you know, as Elon said, to go back to that, you know, put them in the Twitter war, you know, we put them in the crossfire and do everything we can to bring them to the guillotine. So on the one hand, it's like, yeah, 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 no, be be rich and famous and make a lot of money. But hey, when you get there, just so you know, you are going to be under so much scrutiny that if you fuck up, we're going to put you to the screws. We're going to bring the guillotine out. It's insane, actually. It's totally insane how we encourage it and then shame people for it at the same time. It's nuts. I mean, and that's true of a lot of things is we have a lot of the word I'm looking here, but like conflicting things in our culture. And we talk about this when it comes to well-being. It's like there's just so much conflicting advice out there. Health and wellness starts to feel so overwhelming because people don't know what to do. They don't know how to make themselves feel better or look better. And I mean, even appearance, there's a lot of conflicting perspectives out there. It's like, we want you to get thin, but don't get too thin. That's happening with Adele right now. I don't know if you've been paying much attention to her weight loss, but she's posted a few pictures, one very recently as of the time we're recording this, and a few others over the course of the past few months to a year. And it's a noticeable weight loss. And some people are like, wow, she looks amazing. And I want to look that way too. And then there are people that are shaming her. Oh, you've you've become too thin. But she was also shamed before for being on the fuller side with her body. And so how confusing is that for her? It's like people just don't accept her no matter what she looks like. She can never be good enough. I think that's why the the not good enoughness is so rampant is that no matter what you do, you're never going to please everybody, but we're constantly encouraged to please everybody. And then it becomes incredibly confusing because we base a lot of our own self-worth on external validation. So then ultimately, we're not even pleasing ourselves. Here's the, and I say funny, not as in laughable, as in strange when I use the word funny. It's an aphorism or uh, yeah, sorry, not an aphorism. I can't think of it right now. The word I'm trying to think of. It's, I mean, it's strange that people love Adele because of her voice, her musicianship, her incredible emotional content she puts in the songs that she writes and performs. And yet here we are, you know, scrutinizing her body. It's like Adele, Adele has an amazing voice as an an incredible artist, no matter what shape she is. To me, it's just, it's bizarre that someone who isn't even 
how do I say this? Like presenting her art through her body. Yes, her vocal cords and her diaphragm and all those things, you know, produce the sound that comes out of her body. I just find it strange that it's like, why do we care? The thing that we love about Adele is her emotion and her depth and her voice and her music, not how she looks. To me, it's just, it's absolutely bizarre, Whitney. It goes back to like, again, I, I've said this, I think maybe two podcasts ago, like whose business are we in? We in our business, somebody else's business, God's business, like, like what business are we focused on? And I think we just need to like live and let live and let people do what they're going to do instead of like, I don't know, put again, putting them under the microscope, like Adele's rich and famous. So if Adele was some, you know, nightclub singer in Poughkeepsie or Milwaukee or Detroit, would people give a shit? No, but she's Adele and she sold tens of millions of records. She's toured the world. She's one of the most famous musicians of our era. So we put her under a higher level of scrutiny. And it's no wonder so many celebrities are talking more about their mental health struggles because it's like, can you imagine the pressure and the mania of like facing this every single day? Like to me, that sounds, man, people think like, again, being rich and famous must be a cakewalker. It must be so great. Can you imagine the level of scrutiny? that people go through on that level. It's, it's, it, gives, it gives me chills thinking about it. And I think it's, it's also a good talking point in terms of fame in general is that at least in America, we have a huge obsession with getting famous. And I think of social media fame as Jason and I work in this world of content creation and the influencer world and all of that. It's like there's all of this focus on, on your numbers, whether it's your financial numbers, your followers, your appearance, all of this, just constantly measuring ourselves, comparing ourselves to one another. And then there's there's this like resentment sometimes that I know I can't help but feel. And I, I always try to examine when it comes up for me as seeing other people that are successful. But I have to step back and think like, there's so much pressure when you're successful. There's this really big content creator. And Jason, I don't know if you remember seeing him. Well, I know you remember if once I bring it up, but we saw him speak last year at an event that we went to. His name's David Dobrik. And he's this huge YouTube star that came from Vine. And you know he's just blown up. And he's very young. I don't remember exactly how old he is, but I would say early to mid 20s, perhaps. And he's had so much success for years. And he can buy this incredible house and he's donating money. He makes videos about giving people cars and giving all this stuff, which is really cool. And I think a lot of people really admire him. But to me, that just seems like so much pressure because along with all of that fame comes so many decisions you have to make. And I feel like overloaded with decision making as it is in my life. <laughs> I cannot imagine being in my early 20s again, having to deal with so much fame and popularity, A, but then B, making all of these decisions about my career moves all the time and what to do with my money. And are people just liking me because I'm famous? Do people just like me because I have money and they want me to give them a car? I mean, on and on and on. I think about especially just the younger generations and how to deal with that, that you finally get something that's like this huge coveted position of fame on social media. And yet along with that just comes so many burdens and how I'm so grateful that I didn't have that and I don't have that because it's also that that fear that we talked about in our episode with Ruby Roth of like, peaking at a certain age. <laughs> and, and Ruby talked about how she had this fear that she peaked in her 20s. 
And a lot of people have spoken about this. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm getting more external validation and money and all these other measures of success than I may ever experience again in my life. What is left after this? I've had the exact same thoughts of, have I peaked? Is this it? And I've reflected on my career track as a chef and when I had the TV show on the air and I was getting flown to Pebble Beach Food and Wine and all over the country doing these appearances and signed a book deal. And it's so funny because whatever whatever tastes we've had, Whitney, you know, and, and I'm just speaking for myself, whatever tastes of, I don't know, the bright lights or fame or whatever that is, it's interesting because it reminds me of, I've talked to you about this interaction, but I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on the podcast, but years ago, this was maybe like 2011, I was hanging out at a clothing store and I met Joe Manganiello, the actor. He he first, I guess, got famous because he was on True Blood. He was a werewolf on True Blood and he's he's married now to Sofia Vergara. And I was just sitting next to him. I didn't know who he was. I didn't watch True Blood. And I'm at the, I'm at a clothing store like doing a fitting. And I'm like, oh, hey, what's up? He's like, oh, I'm Joe. Cool. I'm Jason. He's from Pittsburgh. I'm from Detroit. We talked about being athletes and how he wanted to be a professional football player. And he never made it to the NFL because he was injured. And I talked about being a basketball player when I was in high school. And we got to talking about cars. He's like, oh, you're from Detroit. You're into cars. Cool. And I said, yeah, you know, what are you driving around? He's like, oh, I got a Ford Explorer. And I said, oh, that's cool, man. You know, my family works for Ford. Anyway, he gets to telling me that Ford gave him the Explorer. I'm like, what do you, you know, I had no idea who he was. I'm like, what do you mean gave you? He's like, well, you know, I came into some success recently. I've been doing some stuff on HBO. He was really humble and really cool. He's like, and you know, when I moved out to LA from Pittsburgh years ago and I was struggling, he's like, didn't nobody want to give me an Explorer back then? Didn't nobody want to comp my meals or give me free clothes or any of that stuff? He's like, man, you get a series, you taste a little bit of fame and people just start throwing things at you. He's like, I don't need that now. I can buy my own car. I can buy my own clothes. I can, you know, go out and drop a hundred, two hundred dollars on dinner. He said, when I really needed it, no one gave a shit. He's like, now that I have a little bit of fame, everyone wants to give me the world. And it's so weird how our world works like that, you know. And we see it, especially living in LA, and you know, me having lived in New York and you in other cities. It's like, you know, people smell success, they smell fame, they smell importance, and they just want to lavish you with stuff that you don't even need anymore. But when you really needed it, it wasn't there. It's really fascinating how our society operates that way. And I feel like there's so much imbalance. I I saw a TikTok earlier today when I was browsing through the app, and this girl was saying, like, it's so strange to me how celebrities encourage us to donate to other people that are less fortunate. And to her point was like a little bit of a joke. Like, well, why don't why don't the celebrities just give the, why are they encouraging us? We don't have as much money as them. And it's interesting for two reasons. Like one, it is a good point. It's like it's hard to hear somebody give advice. Like another example is I, I saw this little like highlight reel or, or promo that the stars of Shark Tank did. I love that show. I watch it every week. And they did one for COVID. And it was each of the sharks giving advice to small business owners. But several of them were recording this in their lavish homes, you know, and they're sitting down on their couch and the background looks perfect and they have their nice clothes and all this stuff. And I, I felt like there was such a disconnect because sure, we know that all those sharks are successful. That's why they're on the show. They're investing in businesses. That's wonderful. But to be sitting there with all your money and financial security, giving advice to people that might be going through one of the worst times of their lives financially, 
just felt a little strange. It's like, okay, like, hey, the, the advice was kind of obvious and said very frequently. But B, it was like, I don't know if I want to be hearing that from somebody when like what I think this TikTok was saying is something that's on a lot of our minds. It's like there's so much financial inequality, imbalance. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just spread that money around instead of trying to like advise people, you know? And I think that's part of the challenge when you see somebody who's really successful giving their advice. It's like, well, it's not that easy though. And as we said earlier, there's like this shame that comes with it. I I mean, Jason, you and I have have felt this so much and we can talk about this more openly. It's like, I have spent so many years studying money. And I know for sure going back to, I think it was like 2008-ish when I read T. Harv Eker's book, The Millionaire Mind. I read the book and I followed his advice and I went to his events and I didn't do everything perfectly. So maybe I just messed up and didn't do it right. And then Jason and I have talked a lot about being huge advocates of Brendan Burchard, who's a similar personality. And, and if you don't know him, he, he's he's a, a kind of equivalent to someone like a Tony Robbins, a motivational speaker. But Brendan talks mostly about business. And now he does a lot in wellness. And we love Brendan. I've been to so many Brenda's events. I've read most of his books. I've followed his advice. And I don't have that much to speak of. And Jason and I went through a year-long business program recently for this our brand, Wellevator. You know, we invested our money in it and we followed their advice. And sure, we didn't do everything perfectly, but we didn't have that much to speak of. And I'd love to explore, Jason, that shame that comes with something where you say you buy something, you invest your time in something, and someone's like promising you all these results and and talking about how successful they've been. And if you follow those steps and you don't get the results that they have, I personally feel a lot of shame around that of like, wow, guess I'm not good enough. Guess I didn't do things right. What am I doing wrong? Like, you know, and it's like this awful feeling of failure when you've really tried so hard to do something and yet you're not getting the result that sometimes you were actually promised or you were convinced that were going to happen. It's really tough. And I think that that came up in an article that you had sent me, Jason, about, well, you can share about it actually. I'll, I'll let you chime in but because I remember, I, I forget the, the title of the article, but that, that will be shared along with anything that we reference today on this episode at wellevator.com. And I read that wonderful article. I think it was in The Guardian. Is that right, Jason? And part of the messaging behind it was the shame that we feel when we don't feel like we're measuring up or getting the results that other people are. Yeah, this is one of those articles. And there's there's been a few articles with, that you and I have passed back and forth over the course of this pandemic that have been really resonant, really deep. And this one in particular cut to the bone for me. And I know you as well, because you texted me your reaction. There were certain passages in this article that hit me in a in a way, because I've been really struggling with the idea that I have really fucked up. I didn't save enough money. I've drained all my investments. I wasn't successful enough last year. And so this year, like, you know, basically running out of money right now. I mean, more will come. It always does. There's that trust, but there's this feeling of I'm really running out of money and running out fast. And when I saw this article yesterday that our dear friend Adam Yasmin, who also has been a, a wonderful guest, will link to his episode in the show notes, this Guardian article that came out yesterday, 
It says, it's the grand illusion how the pandemic exposed that we're all just pretending. And I just want to read a a few chunks of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we'll also link to it in the show notes as Whitney mentioned. Perhaps this crisis will make space for all of us to acknowledge that our losses and our failures aren't our individual faults. It's interesting. I just want to pluck a few things out that really hit me. And the author is Lynn Steger-Strong. In one of the passages, she says, I was meant to write about perception versus reality in what I do professionally. The owner of the New York restaurant Prune, Gabrielle Hamilton, wrote an essay about this recently, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal article. We'll also link to that in the New York Times, describing for so long how many of us have been pretending that we were or were about to, quote, make it. We had checked all or most of the boxes we were told to check in our professions, even as our lives remained in constant states of anxiety and fear. Work, the ability to not only get it and do it, but to not ever stop it, is the attribute that is perhaps flaunted and celebrated most of all. And one of the many reasons most of us don't share the ways that we don't have enough money is, I would argue, because we're ashamed to admit that we're struggling. We've internalized that our suffering is our fault and our fault alone. And that's because we must not be working hard enough. I wanted to write about the pervasiveness of this feeling because there are no longer avenues to stability because I wanted to be less shame around it. I wanted to explore the ways that in entrenched and fundamental ways, our personal struggles are way more systemic than just us. And it goes on to talk about, you know, that there's a lot of people who thought of this idea of success that were, you know, just performing over and over and over again. You know, that hearing other people in the food industry, she goes on like really successful people, like top of their game celebrity chefs have been admitting that, yeah, they, they were just one bad week or month away from going completely under and how much that shocked her. And she discovered, in fact, that a lot of this posturing and a lot of this fake it till you make it or acting like we're successful has been a ruse for so many people for a while. And it's not just shame that keeps us quiet either. We keep our failures close to us because we know, especially in markets like art and books and restaurants and social media, it's so much about our appearance. You know, is that book or that chef or that artist really important? You know, why would anyone pay for their rent or their studio or their speaking tour? And our pretending that we're not drowning is proof that, well, we might be worth saving. And our performing stability and acting like we're stable is one of the few ways that we hope we might navigate the narrow avenues that still might get us out. And this is the last part I'm going to write about or read from this article. A thing, though, about perpetuating misconceptions with people, about pretending. Because you're busy surviving, because you can't stop playing the rigged game on the off chance somehow that you might outsmart it, because you can't help but feel like your circumstances must somehow be your fault, is that it makes it so much harder for any individual within the group to actually tell the truth. That's the part that really like dug into my heart, Whitney, is that how many of us in food and social media and entertainment and authors and all the people you and I hold in high regard, our colleagues, our friends have been bullshitting for so long. And not only that, Whit, how long have I been bullshitting? How long mm-hmm. have I been on social media and my TV series? And I'm this successful chef. I'm this celebrity chef. I'm this best-selling author. But in reality, you know what? I've been living month to month for so fucking long, I can't even remember the last time that I didn't live month to month. But the illusion 
on social media and TV and book tour and speaking tour and all this shit we do has been like, look at me. I'm successful. Look at what I've done. But the reality is, and you know this as, as my best friend and the people close to me know, it has been a fucking struggle for a long, long, long time. Yeah. And I think it's so important to talk about that because the more that we open up about our struggles, it gives permission for other people to open up about theirs and not feel like they're alone in it. Yeah. And I think it's especially important with money because there's just so much going on around in our heads and with other people. And we see it in so many different extremes. We see billionaires and millionaires and we see people in poverty and we see our friends having success and buying homes and then some people losing their jobs and some people going homeless, some people going into massive debt or filing for bankruptcy. I mean, there's so many different extremes. And I think that's why it's so scary and can feel so alone is, is like you were saying earlier, that fear of admitting when you're, when you're having a hard time. I mean, it also reminds me of all the different judgments we have around people and misconceptions or, or confusion. For example, seeing people out in the street asking for money, holding up sign, and we have these judgments, oh, that person must just want money for drugs. Right. Or for me, it's, I don't know if that person wants money for drugs, and I don't know if I feel comfortable giving them money because I don't know where the money is actually going. But what if they really need it? Am I being selfish, not giving it to them? you know, and that massive conflict we have or TikTok again. (laughs) The other day, I saw this girl talking about how when you donate money at grocery stores, they might just be using it for a tax write-off and your money's not actually going where you think it is. That conflict I feel when I'm at whatever store and they ask me to donate money for a cause and I, I stop to wonder, like, where is my money actually going? And that fear that comes up around any donations or the pressure that we feel when we walk out of a grocery store and there's somebody there for Salvation Army or something asking for money. And and just like, I think so many of us want to give more. And so many of us want to talk about these things, but it's hard to even know what's safe. I think that money is so tied to safety, to security. It's like, do I trust this person enough to give them money? Do I trust this person to talk about money? Do I trust this person to ask for money? Just all of those those challenges that we just start to put up so many walls because of that lack of trust that we have with one another. The thing that I want to talk about and, and I guess touch on here that this article also brought up in The Guardian, because I want to go back to it really quickly. At the very end of it, the author says, individual shame and a rampant individual desire to succeed in ruthless systems have kept many of us so quiet about this country's failures. And now amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, they are so blatantly apparent. One of the things I hope this crisis makes space for is for more of us to acknowledge and say out loud that our losses and our failures are not solely our individual faults. I hope we might begin to say out loud all the ways that our system has failed us. To admit as a group that we are being slaughtered and exploited, that our bodies are overworked and undervalued, and that it takes the onus off of any one of us. It can and should make us feel less shame and less fear. And what that brings up for me, Wit, is, you know, I've talked in certain posts about toxic capitalism. And, you know, in our country, in America, you know, we've heard about, of course, the 1% and what that actually means. But what that actually means, that gap means that they average 
39 times more income than the bottom 90%. So if you have where you know a very, very small group of people, an incredibly small group of people averaging 39 times the amount of income, I, I believe we have to acknowledge that that is a toxic form of capitalism. And that level of inequality leads to an incredibly imbalanced system where you have people that literally, if we're experiencing this right now, if they don't have income, that they don't even have the ability to make it to the next month. How, how is it that we have a system, as this author so brilliantly referenced in this article in The Guardian, that encourages us to overwork ourselves and undervalue ourselves just to scrape by month to month to month? And then we're told we didn't work hard enough. You didn't hustle hard enough. Yeah, you know what? Maybe you just didn't like read the right book or take the right class or work hard. Yeah, you should have worked harder. Because you know what? Your grandparents and your parents worked harder than you did. You lazy millennial, you lazy Gen Xer. There's so much rhetoric. There's so much toxic rhetoric around, quote, hard work. When it's like, what do you do when you have literally been busting your ass to the bone just to try and make ends meet? And then you have a whole society saying, yeah, you should have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps more. You should have worked harder. It's like, can I work any harder? Are you fucking kidding me? And then there's the opposite perspective of the spiritual community, which is like, well, you just need to trust and you just need to visualize it and manifest it. And gosh, I mean, I love doing those things. Those things feel good sometimes, but they don't always work. There are so many times where I'm like, maybe I'm just not trying hard enough. Maybe I'm not meditating enough. Maybe I'm not believing enough. Maybe I'm not visualizing enough or manifesting the right way or on and on and on. And the amount of shame I felt over the years of not doing things right on a spiritual level. Right. And all of these promises that were told from spiritual gurus out there. And wow, I mean, they're very well-meaning. I certainly want to believe in them, but it's really hard to put your trust in the universe when you're trying to pay your bills and you have no idea where that money's going to come from. And then you read these books and they're like, well, we know times are tough, but just keep believing. And yeah, like I said, sometimes that has worked for me. Sometimes the money does come and I celebrate it every time it does. It's not to, meant to be cynical, but one thing that's been pointed out to me by other people is like, well, what about all the people in poverty? Don't you think they'd be a little offended if you just went up to them and like, hey, maybe you're not visualizing. Maybe you just need to manifest it. There are people in this world that are literally starving. Yes. And to tell them that they just need to follow your steps or to manifest that money or whatever, I just don't know if that is a, a blanket statement that we could apply to everybody's lives. And I can tell you firsthand that I've tried so many different tactics when it comes to finances, and I have not found one that works every single time, regardless of my circumstances. Sometimes my finances are in a bad place and it doesn't feel like I can do anything. And the last thing I want when I'm feeling financial tension is to also feel shame and to feel like it was my fault and I didn't do enough. Absolutely. Yeah. That is such a horrible feeling of like to sit there and think, well, I guess it's all my fault because I didn't do enough. I can't tell you how often I struggle with that emotion. I, I would probably say I feel that every single day when I wake up and sit there and just feel like incredibly worthless because I didn't feel like I did enough that day. 
and that it's my fault that I'm in my financial position. And it's tough because I'm a really big proponent for taking personal responsibility. You know, I think that's part of it is we do have this culture of like, you know, it's kind of like you're on your own. Oh, 100%. Hey, you got to figure this out on your own. You got to take responsibility. And I think the what's key about this article is that sometimes it might not be our faults. Sometimes it's not fully within our control. Sometimes we can work incredibly hard and not get results. I mean, Jason, you and you've certainly expressed this to me over the years and I've experienced this too. I've worked my ass off on things that I thought were going to be incredibly financially lucrative and they weren't. And I remember for you with one of your programs, Jason, you fell into some deep despair over that. Well, it's not just the amount of, I guess, time and money investment, you know, and and as entrepreneurs and you and I having worked for ourselves for, for so long at this point, there is this idea that if I just check all the boxes, if I do my due diligence, if I get the right team around me and you know, survey our audience and find out what they want and invest in the right infrastructure and do the launch program and write the emails and hire a copywriter, hire this person. I mean, you and I have done so many iterations of, quote, doing the right things when launching new programs, new products. And I suppose I was convinced because I consulted and hired the right people and did all the, yeah, right things that I thought. And then when I didn't necessarily turn a profit on those things, you know, it can be devastating to recover from those things for me because you invest, you know, depending on the project, months or even years into something and then you launch it and it kind of doesn't go like you thought it would go. And then you've spent all this time and money and preparation launching this thing and it doesn't give you the ROI or the profit you thought it would. And then you're like, well, what the hell do I do now? And I suppose that I, I don't know. I've thought, yeah, do I need to get a thicker skin? Do I need to be able to rebound quicker from these things? I don't know. But I've certainly been in a dark space around, you know, spending so much time, effort and money around launching certain things and then not really getting the return energetically or financially that I thought. And I'm kind of in a space right now where I'm not really sure what to do, to be honest with you. Whereas, you know, to kind of reflect back on this article that we've been reading from this Guardian article, and certainly what really even cut deeper to me was this New York Times article from this restaurateur, this chef, Gabrielle Hamilton, how she talked about, you know, being in the restaurant business for 20 years. And now all of a sudden there's no income and there's no restaurant and there's no business. And everything that she has known for the last two decades of her life is just you, she might not be able to come back from this. You know, it may it, it may not be that she can rebound from this. And for me, having been focusing as a chef for the last fifteen years, there's no, there's no business. There's no income right now. There's just none coming in. And I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people feel this way in their careers. Like, what do I do now? And the answer is I don't know. And the answer of I don't know is scary as shit, because bills are due, and credit cards are due, and utilities are due, and rent is due. And we live in one of the most expensive places in the country. To say I'm not terrified would be lying. And it's not to compare again that there are people in way worse, quote, worse situations, more dire, let's say that, situations. And going around and feeding the homeless, as I've done several times over the course of this pandemic, you know, you see people and and meet people who are literally, you know, living in tents downtown and living in tents on Echo Park Lake and living under underpasses. You know, the whole comparison thing, I think, is a slippery slope, and it it doesn't necessarily do us much good to be like, well, they've got it worse. Like, we're all 
in different degrees of panic and anxiety and fear and confusion right now and comparing situations, I don't know, is that useful to be honest? Because it's like, you know, how are we going to pay bills next month? I don't know. Or the month after that, no idea. And whether it's wondering where our next meal is going to come from or our next hot shower or how we're going to keep a roof over our heads or pay the rent. Most everyone I know and, and the conversations Whitney, you and I have and a lot of our close friends and colleagues and, and peers are vacillating between like, okay, all good. We're going to make it through and being in absolute fucking terror about all of this. Like, I'm, I'm not even going to say like, I, I don't know anyone who I haven't received a phone call from in our close circle with who hasn't been like, I was up all night with nightmares. I'm terrified about how my business is going to continue. I don't know how I'm going to pay the mortgage or pay the rent. And I feel like if people are fronting about like, yeah, all good, all good. Just keep trusting, keep trusting, keep trusting. It's kind of falling back into this trap of this article we referenced where it's like, do you really feel like you're in full trust and full faith? Or are you just like faking it right now? Like, like how do you feel really? How do you feel really about this? And I just feel like being honest about it, whatever level we're at, invites more people to be radically honest that they might be terrified and scared as hell about losing their business and losing what they've done for the last 10, 15, 20 years and not knowing where to go from here. I'm certainly in that space right now. I'm fucking terrified. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where we're going to go from here. Yeah. And I think especially in our community of the wellness world is not only being content creators, which in itself comes with a lot of pressure to front and we've been trained to do this and it shifts off and on. But for the most part, content creators, there's like an energetic pressure to always do things perfectly and to follow the the pattern and the styles and the and to just do what's working for the algorithm. And it's it's like a lot of of fake it till you make it. And sometimes cheating the system and pretending that things are going better than they're not. And so it's like, it's so easy to fall into this trap of presenting yourself in a way that's not fully true because you feel like if you don't present yourself that way, then you're never going to get what you want. And so it's so appealing. And there's also for me, and I think a lot of our close friends and the people in our, in the wellness community, it's like, it's really hard to admit when you're scared it's hard to admit that you don't trust because there is so much of this pressure to just believe and surrender. And whether you're religious or whether you believe in the universe, a higher power, a spirit, it's like, hey, don't worry about it. Like somebody has your back. God has your back. The universe has your back, whoever. And you just got to trust in it. You just got to surrender to it. And as I said, there is part of my core that believes in that sometimes simply because I don't have a choice. <laughs> like if I'm not going to end my life, which I don't have any intention on doing, I don't really have much of a choice but to just keep going every day. I should say I am choosing to keep going every day no matter what. But sometimes to keep going, that is going in fear. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think there's a shame that comes a lot from religion too, but also the spiritual communities. And there's so much crossover between the two, essentially very similar, if not the same, is like, well, if you don't trust in God, like you, you don't actually believe in God or you're not doing things right. And you need to just keep trusting and trusting and you're offending. You just need to pray more. You need to meditate more. You need to do all of these things and trust, 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 trust. But I think it's important to admit sometimes, like, actually, I have fear and actually, I don't have any trust right now. Actually, I am so terrified of the uncertainty. I am thinking about ending my life sometimes because this is so painful. 
you know, and wasn't there something else I had sent you, Jason, about the rise of suicides right now? Yeah, there's actually been a few articles uh, about, you know, how all of this is contributing to a, a massive spike in mental illness and people being suicidal. And it makes sense because in some ways, depending on what statistics you believe, you know, the unemployment rate being the highest it's been, it may have even overtaken it. I'm not quite sure today, as of the time we're recording this, of the unemployment rates in the US being on par or maybe even exceeding the Great Depression of 100 years ago. You know, the economic devastation of people wondering how they're going to provide for their families, feed their families, pay the rent, pay the mortgage, keep the lights on. Combine that, like I said, with an example of someone who's had a thriving career for decades and suddenly they're out of work, suddenly they're unemployed. The pain of identifying with being a successful person, you know, or having that part of your identity of I have this job, I have this career, I have this thing, and that's what I've known for decades of my life. And suddenly it's not there anymore. As someone who has struggled a lot with mental health, which is one of the reasons we created this podcast, certainly not my specific struggle, but extrapolating that into wanting to provide more conversations and resources and articles and supplements and, and science and human point of view around mental and emotional health, I'm struggling like hell right now. You know, And I'm struggling because it's A, lack of financial resources, B, it's this idea that my level of productivity or my level of how much content I create, or how prolific that content is, is tied to my self-image. You know, if I'm not this successful chef, author, TV host, blah, 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 whatever, where's my value in the world? If I'm not constantly creating, constantly pumping out content, constantly uplifting others, well, maybe I just don't have the bandwidth to uplift others right now. And I've really been feeling that way recently, Wit, is is I just feel lost. I feel like for the first time in probably two decades, I don't have a plan. I don't have a plan. I don't know what to do next. I've been applying for different jobs and, and different gigs. I've been putting out proposals to different partners and different people that I could collab with. But you know, over the last two months, you know, n- nothing work-wise has come through. And it's... Um, I know a lot of people in that position who right now are vacillating between, as you so brilliantly detailed, you know, trusting in God, universe, spirit, all that is like, okay, I've been through rough patches before, I've been in the unknown before, but for some reason, the severity of this and how sweeping this economic devastation is feels different, certainly, than other, other points of uncertainty I've experienced in my career. This feels different to me. And so I certainly, like you, vacillate between feeling like it's going to be okay, everything's going to be all right, and moments of, I don't know how we're going to survive this. And my version, look, you know, the reality is, right, I'm not going to be homeless. The terror that comes up is like, you're going to be homeless like your father was. Like that, that specter, that illusion hangs over my head sometimes. But I know like, if the shit really hit the fan, like, what's worst case scenario? I put all my stuff in storage. I pack the animals in the car and I drive back to Detroit. Is that worst case scenario? Yeah. Would I feel a tremendous amount of shame around that? Probably. Would my ego feel torched? Absolutely. Like you failed. You had to pack up all your shit and move back home. You didn't make it. You failed. You fucked up. You couldn't make it. I've gone there. I've sunk into that. So I know like, will I run out of food? Probably not. Will I be homeless? Probably not. 
Will I not have people who would support me or take me in? Yeah. And, and in that way, I feel a sense of privilege. And I don't mean that in a negative way because I feel like privilege gets tossed around in a very negative, like, oh, well, that's because you have privilege. You have pri-. like, it's a very negative thing in our society, I think. But the reality is, yeah, I do feel a level of privilege in that I'll have a roof over my head and I'll have food on the table and I'll be taken care of. But there's also the societal narrative of you're a 42 year old man. You're going to go like move back in with your mom. Because you fucking didn't make it, you failed. Like, is that real? Did I actually fail? If worst case scenario, I had to pack up all my shit in a storage unit and leave LA and take the animals and like go live with my family at 40, the societal narrative would be you failed and you're a fuck up, right? But is that real? Like that, that's what I wrestle with. I don't wrestle with, I'm going to starve and be homeless because I have privilege. I wrestle with you fucked up and you failed because you didn't quote, make it. And you would have to move back in with your family because you'd be destitute. That's my biggest fear. Mm. I think it's really wonderful that you're sharing that, Jason. And it's important to hear because we hear a lot of stories on the other side of this. And it's tempting to say, well, look at this person. Like They had to couch surf. And that's when they came up with their brilliant idea. It's you know, There's a lot of beautiful stories of people who came from nothing or had the highs and lows in their lives and came out of it. And the truth is, we have no idea what's next for us, for better or for worse. You know, for worse, we think, I might lose my house. I might have to move in with my parents. But for better, you could have something really unexpected happening that brings you a lot more income. And that's where I try to go, is it's like, first of all, I sit with my dark emotions and try not to judge them. I think that's incredibly important. And I and that's part of the reason we're sharing this is it, we're committed to being honest with you, the listener, because we want to have these raw and comfortable conversations and not always paint life as like some formulaic thing because it's not formulaic. There's way too many factors for us to promise that our lives can be replicated and that somebody else can have that. And I think there's a little cynical side of me that that feels a little bit resentful of, of all the different people that I've, quote, followed and tried to replicate their success. And I feel a little resentful for them promising me things. I mean, I certainly did in one of the programs that Jason and I took. I remember just finishing that program and thinking, I feel disappointed because this person, I trusted this person and I learned a lot from them. But they told me I was going to get results and I didn't get them. And then I had to battle with my feelings of, well, maybe I just did it wrong. And I don't know what the truth is. I don't know. Did I not do things right? And if I had followed them exactly how they've encouraged me, would I have received those results? But I think it's also okay to be disappointed and it's okay to feel a little bitter. You know, it's normal if you feel jealous or resentful, or any of these dark emotions of other people that you see succeed. I think the important thing is that we don't want to pass on the shame. If you feel those emotions, those are kind of normal. (laughs) Those are common, I should say. Maybe not normal, but very common emotions to feel frustrated with somebody and just like want to lash out because you're in so much pain and they seem like they've got everything figured out. But A, as one of our big points is in this episode, is maybe their lives aren't as great as you think they are. And maybe their lives aren't as wonderful as their highlight reels are. And then if you're feeling all of those emotions towards them, like just let them pass through you. Let any of these negative emotions pass through. I think one of the big keys here is that if all you did today was survive 
you did a great job. You know, ultimately, I, I would say this to Jason. It's like, Jason, just hearing you express like your worst case scenario, it really doesn't sound so bad because you have a wonderful, supportive mother. And yeah, you do have a home to go to. It's almost impossible for you to be homeless, Jason, because of the support system that you have. And I certainly have no judgment on you if you wanted to go live with your mom. I think, gosh, that sounds wonderful. I did that in 2012. I went and lived with my parents for a few months and that wasn't, you know, that wasn't even 10 years ago. And there were a couple of people that judged me for that. You know what? That was a really wonderful time. Despite the tensions of living with your family members, <laughs> it was really wonderful. And I could do that at any point. To your example, Jason, like both of us have the blessing of having family members that would welcome us home if we needed to go there if we needed to pack up our cars and and drive to our, live with our families and reminding ourselves of those things if you the listener have that privilege as well of somebody else who would take you in with open arms that is a privilege and that is a really important thing to remember because a lot of our fears are rooted in our fears of surviving and if you can't pay your bills maybe you won't be evicted right away so maybe it's okay not to pay your bills or maybe your your power won't be cut off but even if like all of those awful things happen which they can there are other things that you can do instead and if you're still alive that is the most important thing and i, I think it's actually great too that that you shared this worst case scenario jason because a it doesn't sound so bad to me on the outside. So if you're worried about what people think of you, I bet you more people could relate to it than you may even realize. But also the people that love you the most, Jason, and I, I say this to the listener as well, the people that truly love you don't care about that stuff. They just want you to be alive. And it makes me emotional to even say that because <laughs> there's so much power around that. And it's it's so important to remind ourselves of that. But even just saying that brings me up emotions too, Jason, because like, you know, you've struggled a lot with feelings of of suicide. You've been tempted to end your life many times during our friendship. And yeah. at the core, as your friend, all I want is for you to be alive. That's all that matters to me. That's all that matters for most of us, really. It's not quite that simple, but but I think that that's what each of us really just want deep down is we want to be okay and we want to be alive. We want to survive. That's our, our basic human emotion. And we've created these lives where so many other things matter. And at the core of wellness, it's ultimately about finding... And I think actually going back to Elon Musk as the example, it's like, yeah, he's a famous billionaire who's had a lot of success. He's got so much. He's got a partner that I imagine loves him. He's got children that I assume love him. He is recognized all over the world. He's done incredible things for this for many, many people. And and he's also made mistakes and he's pissed people off and he's set off color things. Whatever you think of Elon Musk though, I actually think it's amazing that he's at this point where it's like, I don't need all these material possessions. He wants that. His, his focus right now is getting humanity to Mars, right? Like that's that's what matters to him. And it's like we have just built so much. And we started off this episode talking about the desire to accumulate wealth in order to buy things and have freedom and all this stuff. But like ultimately, what really matters is 
staying alive and then all of the basic needs and important things to us. And and maybe that's just one of the beautiful things that we are uncovering right now is that if we can't pay our bills, maybe it's not so bad. Ah, oh, it brings up a lot for me what you just said, Wit, you know, and, you know, I th- a big part of this for me is, again, the fear that I won't be housed or not the fear that I won't have food in my belly or have a hot shower to bathe in, you know, the basics. I, I To be accurate about my suffering and my mental health crises, it's not necessarily a survival suffering or a fear of not being able to survive as you detailed. It's fear of feeling shame for myself. It's fear of not being loved. It's fear of self-judgment and the judgment of others of like, huh, this fucking 42-year-old guy like had to move back in with his mom because he was broke, because he failed, because he failed as an entrepreneur, because he failed as a chef, he failed as an artist. You know, and 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 I know my mental battle would be severe with that. I know it would because my ego and my self-identity would be so challenged of like, you're approaching your mid forties and you had to move back in with your mom. You fuck up, you know? And, and the fear of how badly I would judge myself and the fear of not being lovable, like who would want to date me? Who would want to love some 42 year old guy that had that failed so badly he had to move all the way back across the country and live with his mother? Who would love me? That's really, that's the deepest part of it. It's not survival. It's not whether I would have food on the table or like, or like, you know, you as a friend or like, I know the core people who know me would still be with me. It's the deepest fear is the shame and the unlovability that I would feel around myself and project that onto like a romantic partner that as a man in American society, he failed in business. He failed with his art. He failed with his craft, his career. And like, where would I even go from there mentally? I don't know. Like that's, that's the deepest core of my fear is the shame that I would feel for myself in that situation. This is why it's so important to talk about these things. And this is why having loved ones, friends that you can open up with is such a blessing. And I feel so grateful for you, Jason. And I feel grateful for this platform of the podcast to talk about this. And I hope that it opens up the hearts and minds of other people who who want to talk about these things, but feel that shame and who haven't fully looked within themselves. And, you know, from a spiritual level, if we look for the lessons within everything and the hard parts of our lives, like maybe it isn't about that trust we talked about, like maybe trust isn't the answer. Maybe it's, maybe it's just self-examination and learning lessons, whatever that means. I think just because you learn a lesson doesn't mean that you figured things out. It just means that you learned something and applying it doesn't always mean that you get the outcome that you want. That's something I continuously learn. It's We talk a lot about letting go of expectation and and letting go of, of what we think other people expect of us. I think that's 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 deeply rooted in our money issues, our, our money concerns, our money fears is that they're so tied into our status and they're so tied into external validation. And we've ta- been taught so many different things from other people, whether they've directly taught us or we've learned by their example or we've compared our lives to them. There's so many emotions tied into money and I think it brings up a lot. So my hope is that the listener 
has a chance to step back and examine this too. Whenever that might happen, sometimes you have these these aha moments. And for me, mine is that the key is to survive. And I, I think that's what we wish for each and every one of you listening to this show is we just want you to to survive because that's at the core of mental health, I think. You know, sure, it's nice when you can thrive, and we certainly hope that you thrive and not just survive. I think that's probably (laughs) in some of our copywriting on our website or our podcast description or something. You know, yeah, thriving is wonderful, but we're not always thriving, but we are surviving as long as we're here on the planet. And that is ultimately the most important thing. And I think we each need to acknowledge ourselves for that and then start to think about what we actually have, what we have access to. I think that's one of the greatest gifts of financial challenges is you start to get really creative and aware of your your actual circumstances and actual needs. Like, what do you really need to spend money on right now? Do you need to buy all these things on Amazon or wherever else? Or do you simply just need to buy food so that you can survive and get access to water? And Maybe there's so much in, our, in your life. I'm actually fairly certain that there's so much in each of our lives that we don't actually need and we're spending money on. But like, if it just comes down to paying the water bill and keeping the electricity on and paying for rent or getting to a point where you just have enough money to put gas in your car so you can drive home to live with your parents, or maybe you call up your friends and ask if you can crash on their couch, whatever it is. I think the other beautiful thing about these times is we're forced to be very humble. And I think that's another thing I'm learning from what you've said today, Jason. You've been incredibly humble. You've been raw. You've been open. And that's really beautiful. And lastly, I think the other big thing is the reminder to be generous whenever you can, whether it's generous with money, generous with time, generous with love, generous with resources, You know, not everybody has the money to donate. Maybe you're just getting by day by day and you you just don't feel comfortable giving a dollar away. That's okay. Each of us have been in that position. Now, sometimes even a penny can help because a penny does have a compounding effect if enough people donate a penny. So, you know, give what you can, but your resources, whether it's time, love, or making something those are needed too. And gosh, the moments when somebody's generous to me when I'm feeling like I'm really struggling, those are some of the most beautiful parts of life. And hearing what you've said today, Jason, has reminded me of how many generous people are in my life and all the different ways that they've been generous to me. And my parents, for example, you know, it's like the generosity that they they gave you life and they raised you. And then you know, knowing that I could go go home and be with them, that's a generous thing. Or the friends that I call, if I needed to, I could call them up and stay with them. You know, there's a lot of generosity in this world. And I think we need to acknowledge ourselves for all those ways that we can be generous. And then we need to acknowledge the people around us for being generous. And that brings us closer as a community. So I guess my encouragement is is to reflect on all of these things. Reflect on what you need versus what you want. Reflect on what you have and what you can give in big and small ways. It's beautifully, beautifully said, Whitney. I feel that 
perhaps one of the biggest lessons that I'm present to right now, and it's a lesson over and over again every day, is presence. And we've heard so many things um, from about presence from so many spiritual teachers. Of course, Eckhart Tolle is probably one of the first that come to top of mind with his teachings and his books. But if I look at my pain and I look at my fear and I look at my suffering, most of it is rooted in perceived regrets or shame about the past. I didn't save enough money. I didn't invest well enough. I didn't plan for the future. I didn't plan for a pandemic like this, which is why I'm running out of money or perceive that I'm running out of money. Or the pain that comes from future projection, as I just said, my greatest fear is tail between my legs, loading up the animals in my car and driving cross country back to Detroit to have to live with my mom and you know, file for bankruptcy or whatever it is. That's a future projection. None of those things exist. The past is gone and whatever perceived regrets that I use to self-deprecate myself or use as fuel to wound myself or whatever projected future fears don't even exist. Because the reality is, if I'm going to practice presence, I am in a house in Los Angeles. I'm safe. I'm warm. I have food in my refrigerator. I'm surrounded by three cats on the table where I'm recording this podcast with you that love me and they're they're butting up against me and giving me love right now. I'm talking to my best friend, examining this topic of fear and projection and presence with you, Whitney, and, and all is well. I have clothes on my back. I have a hot shower to go to after this, you know? In this moment, all is well. That I know for sure. In this moment, all is well. And if I have any practice that pulls me out of future fear projection or past pain or past regrets, it is to literally take inventory of what is right in front of me in this moment. And I think whether or not the listener or whoever is tuning into this podcast has a meditation, mindfulness, or presence practice, for me, that is one thing that I have been using over and over again to pull me out of pain and pull me out of suffering and pull me out of fear is what is happening right now? Can I be fully present to it? Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your heart so openly today. (laughs) Not a direction I was expecting to go in, but very few of our episodes go anywhere we planned. Do we ever know? (laughs) No, we don't. (laughs) Maybe this podcast is an analogy for life, you know? Mm -hmm. Certainly is. No idea where it's going. We're very grateful for you, the listener, for listening to us and We love hearing from you. We truly want you to be part of the conversation. So we hope that you reach out to us, whether publicly or privately. Publicly, you can do that through social media. We are at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. That's also our website, as we've mentioned, wellevator.com, where you can find the podcast show notes. And when you go to the show notes on our website, there is a comment section. So you can join the conversation there. We really, really love hearing from you. So we hope that you'll write in and share your reflections on this episode or any episode that you listen to. We encourage you to subscribe and to share the episodes, leave a review if it appeals to you because that helps it reach other people. And really, we'd be honored if you shared this episode with somebody else you think could need it. And and actually, that could help open you up to a conversation if you want to listen to it with them or have a little discussion afterwards. We would love to hear where that leads whether it's a romantic partner, a family member, a friend, somebody who's struggling with money, we we ultimately just want you to know that you're not alone and that we're here for you. So if you want to reach out to us privately through a social media direct message 
or through email, which is hello at wellevator.com. We would love to support you in whatever way we possibly can. We have a supportive community of people on Patreon. So if you join there, you not only support us, but you get to connect with other people and have deeper discussions together about the episodes. So that's there for you at patreon.com slash wellevator. And we always welcome your feedback about other resources and episodes we can create. We have tons of freebies. I don't know if we have any directly about money on there, but we have free ebooks about learning how to feel good enough. We have an ebook about how to ch- take charge of your life and feel more empowered. That, that actually does include some some tips on business from other wellness entrepreneurs out there. And we always try to take our balanced perspective and uh, show you what other people are doing and, and try not to, to present a formula for you. <laughs> we also have our trainings, Wellness Warrior Training in the Consistency Code, which has been designed to guide you through all different elements of wellness and being consistent with it and holding yourself accountable. And we are dedicated with this podcast and all the things I just mentioned to helping your well-being because we do want to see you survive and hopefully thrive as well. And we can't wait to connect with you further. Anything you'd like to add, Jason? Yeah, I just want to thank you for being an invitation to have such a raw and open and visceral discussion today because I feel like a lot of the things that I talked about with you, I haven't shared publicly, certainly, because it's this idea that we referenced in the article about keeping up some kind of front. But I actually feel a deep sense of relief and openness having talked about this with you in this public forum of our podcast. So I just appreciate you, Whitney, you know, opening the space for this conversation and this this level of of depth for us to share and examine this together. And yeah, I just feel better, I guess. And and I hope that whoever's listening has gained some perspective and relief knowing that maybe you're not alone in your fears and your struggles because um I really feel like for whatever it's worth, we are all in this together and being more honest and open about what we're going through is I think part of the medicine that we all need as a society right now. So thank you, Whitney, for doing this. And and thank you to the listener for getting really uncomfortable (laughs) with us because this one for me at least felt um, like one of the most uncomfortable episodes yet. And, And yet through that discomfort, I feel a sense of deep relief and peace. Absolutely. Me too. I think it always helps to cry. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. You know, I, I actually don't feel like I cry that much and I, I don't like to force myself to cry, mm. but I, I actually feel grateful when I do cry and allow that emotion to come out because there is a sense of relief on the other side. Just like talking, talk is therapy. You know, it's therapeutic for us to create these episodes. And as we said, we hope that it's therapeutic for you, the listener. And if it doesn't feel therapeutic enough, that's why we really encourage you to talk to others, whoever that may be. And if if you don't feel like you have that person in your life to turn to, which not everybody is fortunate to have, you can open up to us anytime. We are here to listen and we want to be as as part of your life as you would like us to be. So please never hesitate to reach out and and open up, share, write us an email if you'd like or comment on social media. We'll get back to you as soon as possible and look for as many ways that we can to help give you the relief that you're craving too, because everyone deserves that. Everyone deserves to feel better. Well said, Whitney. Thank you. I love you. Appreciate you. And uh, yeah. (laughs) 
I think I'm going to go get some ice cream after this. <laughs> Me too, actually. I was thinking of going to get ice cream. <laughs> Good God. This feels like an ice cream moment. It does. Wait, wait, where, where are you going to get ice cream from? Probably yoga urt. Ah, okay. Yeah. I was yeah. thinking salt and straw. Yeah. Well, maybe we can get ice cream together again sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that just sounds so nice. You know, it's the simple things in life. Going to get ice cream, whether or not you have to put it on your credit card or, or scrounge around for some quarters <laughs> to get it or make it yourself. Actually, maybe in the show notes, Jason, we can put one of your ice cream recipes. I would love that. I would love to do that. Yes. I will okay. share two, two of my ice cream recipes, classic ice cream recipes. What flavors are they? One is vanilla and one is a mint chocolate chip. I thought so. I was like, I think he has, ooh, can you just tell me real quick what's in the mint chocolate chip? Because maybe I'll make it instead of going out for it. It's cashew and coconut meat and a non-dairy milk of your choice. There's vanilla. There's a little bit of spirulina or chlorella to give it the green color. A cacao nibs or Lily's sugar-free chocolate chips. And a little bit of like, uh, you can use like a soy lecithin or sunflower lecithin as an emulsifier. And you blend that up. And you get a ice cream maker, which usually has the frozen bowl, and you put it in the ice cream maker and let it do its thing for like 45 minutes, then put it in the freezer. And a couple hours later, you got fresh ice cream. Well, that sounds like way more work than uh, <laughs> going to one of the many ice cream joints we're blessed to have in LA that has vegan options. So that's what I'm going to do with myself. I hope you do the same, Jason. We can share some posts about that. And uh, I hope that anybody who continued to listen to this episode up until this point enjoyed the little surprise treat. Maybe we inspired you to get some ice cream too. So let us know if you did. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.